Welcome to this special edition of the Upland Nation podcast. Yeah, it's been a while, and a lot of you, uh, like me, noticed that, uh, well, there was a news item a few days ago that uh, really uh, shook me. It wasn't Bob's dog, but it was one of the legacy dogs that carried on in the footsteps of Bob Ferris's poodle pointer, picking up the tee at the Boise State football games every year. The passing of yet another poodle pointer of legend reminded me that um, many of you had not heard my earlier interview with Bob, a mentor of mine, training partner, mentioned him a number of times in my book, and um, seems to be one of the more popular episodes of the Upland Nation podcast. So, uh, by the way, I'm Scott Linden, the host of the Upland Nation podcast, and here we are learning more every day from some of the folks who, well, I'll just call them the icons of our generation. Bob Ferris from Idaho is one of those kind of guys. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for quite a while, and I am sure you will enjoy listening once again to my interview with Bob that originally aired way back in February of 2020 when his new book came out. We'll talk about the book. We'll talk about puppies. We'll talk about training. We'll talk about testing. It's all coming up right here. So pay attention. Write the things down that are of value to you. I can guarantee you'll learn something from him, and it's all made possible by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, here on South Dakota's Ringneck Nation, and Dr. Tim's Natural Premium Dog Food. Enjoy! So, without further ado, like I said earlier, Bob Ferris joins us from uh, somewhere in Idaho. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's good to talk with you again. It's been a while since I've been over there. I think I might have seen you at a NAVDA test in between then and now, but... I'm constantly thinking of you because every time I do any dog training, I know you taught me to do it a different way, and I wish I could remember that before I did it the wrong way. So uh, <laughs> uh, if I might just uh, give people just a little bit of backstory, and then I'll ask you to fill in the blanks. Uh, if anybody used to watch, Boy is it Boise State? Or, yeah, it's Boise State. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, foot, State. Football games. Um, you, have a, you have a rather unusual claim to fame there. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, back about 2000, I, I graduated from Boise State, and I've, I've been going to games. I don't want to tell you how long I've been. I've had season tickets. But anyway... Somewhere about 2008, 2009, athletic director called me and asked me if I would could train a dog to retrieve the kicking tee following kickoffs. And I had trained his dog for him. For I, I, I was training gun dogs. I'd trained a hunting dog for the basketball coach. I'd trained one for the athletic director. And so they, they knew who I was. We'd hunted together. And so... I said, yeah, I think I can do that. Let me let me try. So I spent off and on the summer training and whatnot for it. And uh, opening opening game was ironically Boise State against Oregon State, and it was ESPN game day here in Boise, and it was just flooded with ESPN people and and. Uh, Probably as close to a heart attack as I ever came was getting ready to send the dog on that first retrieve. But I think he retrieved that tee seven times that day. Boise State put a pretty good whooping on Oregon State. And we had a young quarterback named Kellen Moore. And that team, that team went, 19 of those players went into the NFL. Uh, and a lot of them, their rookie year in the NFL started. So it was a great, great talented team that scored lots and lots of points so I was used they, they were scoring in the 50s and 60s every game which meant lots of kickoffs lots of tee retrieves and a lot of fun I you know I, I included my whole family and my two grandsons I would I would alternate with these two grandsons and and let them hold the dog while I watched the game and and you know they were standing on the sidelines with all the players and it was just it was a good time really really a good time but uh 
three years of it, and it was time to time to move on. Well, I understand that. The rumor has it that your your dog was in the second round of the NFL draft that year. <laughs> I, I don't know about the draft, but I know I, I know I could have run him for mayor of Boise, and he'd have won. Oh yeah, I I saw him in action. It 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 it, it was quite a spectacle. Um, uh, in addition to all of that, I think the first place we probably met was out at your swamp out there where you were so kind to allow so many NAVDA tests or segments of tests or training, all those things happening out there in Idaho. And then, like I said, came over and enjoyed the heck out of some training we did together. Out of that, I wrote a book. And then eventually uh, somebody smarter than me wrote a book uh, that would be called Breeding and Training Versatile Hunting Dogs. And that would be you, Bob, right? That was me. That was me. Tell me I why? Why, why did you? Why did you finally decide to put all that stuff down? You know, I had written off and on myself, Jeff Funky, Blaine Carter. We we were kind of ghostwriters for Pointing Dog Journal, and helping with articles. And along the way, somewhere along the way, Chuck Johnson asked me to write a book, and I just I I didn't want to write a book. I didn't, you know, I just felt like. I don't, I don't want to put my, my name out there, my ego in front of people and whatnot. But finally, you know, my wife and I went to Kauai for two weeks. And two weeks in Kauai, I had nothing to do but sit on the beach and write a book. So I sat, I wrote, I wrote the whole book sitting over there and brought it home. And I, it was all handwritten. And I gave it to a secretary that I'd had at work. And she put it all into Word, Word documents and and then it got published. Uh, Lafay actually published it in Amazon, and so I don't know. It was, it was kind of a fun adventure. It was a lot easier than I thought it would possibly be. And you know, I just a lot. A lot of why I wrote it was because I I, I really felt there was a need for people that wanted to train a dog. The, the, a lot of the, a lot of the training wasn't geared towards the versatile dogs. I mean, you can you can go back to a lot of the training for retrievers, and I mean, the very very high end training that's in in books. And so, and in selling puppies to people, I wanted to give them as much information as I could, basically, so I didn't have to possibly deal with them, you know. I wanted them to be able to take care of their own training needs. So, you know, it, it just kind of all came together. I probably would never do it again. You know, I've been, I've been topped because my wife then turned right around and wrote a cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, it, it, as it, as it should be, because she, she's a great gal and, and, uh, obviously, uh, an incredible help on your book, uh, you, um, unlike the, uh, and I've forgotten who said it first, probably uh, Hemingway, he said, it's easy to write a book, just sit down and open a vein. I don't even think yeah. you, pr- you didn't even prick a finger on a, on a coconut drink of any sort. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, like, like I say, it, it was fun. And I had, I had, I guess I had a, I'd written a number of articles about different things. And I, so I included a lot of that in the book. I just, I think the hardest thing was to create an outline of what I wanted in the book. Yeah. And once that was done, it just all happened. Yeah, that's that's you know? spectacular. And, and it, it's a great book, everybody. And the, the best way to find it, I've, I figured out, is right there on Amazon. If you just uh, Google Amazon Bob Ferris dog book, you'll find it. I just did that to test that theory, and it worked great. So yeah. uh, uh, spend a few nickels and dimes on that, and you'll learn something, uh, not just about dog training and dog behavior, but about the life of a guy who, uh, to, to many people, is living the life. So... Um, Bob, before we get to your specific breed, you've used the term already a couple times, and there may be a listener or two out there on the Upland Nation podcast who's not quite sure what a versatile hunting dog is. As a judge, as an active NAVDA guy in the past, why don't you define versatile hunting dog in a concise manner? Probably kind of the, the, the do-everything dog. I mean, we've got a lot of really great breeds for sportsmen, dog enthusiasts, from the retrievers to the pointers to the flushers, you know, down to cockers. And 
you know, everybody kind of picks what what's going to suit them. And uh, a versatile dog is just meant to be able to do all of it. Maybe not be the best at anything, but the best at doing everything. And you know, there's a there's a, a big group of, of breeds that fall into this. And you know, they need to be good hunting dogs in the field, good water dogs, uh, good tracking dogs, good family dogs, just a little bit of everything. And uh, you know, it's I think for the for the sportsman, it's it, it gets to be kind of cumbersome trying to figure out. Okay, I, I know I want a versatile dog, but I don't know which one I want. And they start. You get overpowered with with the number of breeds, from short hairs to wire hairs to Britneys to Vieslas to Weimarimers. I mean, it goes on and on. And they're all versatile. They all have the capabilities of being a versatile dog. Some are a little better at, at different things, and then some breeders have, you know, carried a lot better torch and mm-hmm. and you know just done a lot better job and. With the internet today, it's 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 for the guy that really is looking for a top dog. It's it's pretty easy to find the the, the best of, of all of these breeds. Oh yeah, and in fact, th- this is uh, fascinating that you and I connected again after a while. Um, one of my nieces, her husband, uh, uh, decided he wants to become a bird hunter all of a sudden, and uh, the first correspondence I got from him was. I think I've settled on a poodle pointer. What do you think? And <laughs> uh, and for him, not the right idea, but for a lot of people, extremely correct. Why don't you tell me what you love about the poodle pointer breed, which uh, you came over to from the retrieving side. So, you know, tell me, uh, tell me about your conversion. Well, my first dog I ever owned was an English setter. And, uh, I fell in. My, my, my dad always had uh, Llewellyn setters, and so uh, when I graduated from college, I needed to hunt. I stayed in Boise, and we had great bird hunting. I needed a bird dog, so I just went back to a setter, and I met some guys. I started doing some uh, pointer field trials, and then I fell in love with waterfowling. I didn't realize, you know, the Snake River, Boise River, Payette River, fills up with ducks and I needed a retriever so I I, I chose a Chesapeake uh, and so I ended up field trialing Chesapeake's for quite a while and I ran all over the northwest at AKC retriever trials for a good number of years and as my kids got older and some of my habits got more expensive I opened up or created a little part-time dog training um, business and one of the dogs I got in to train was a poodle pointer. I didn't even I didn't even know what one were what one were what one was, and the the guy paid me to hunt it rather than train it. It was a fully trained dog. It had been trained by Bodo Winterhelt, uh, gone through all the NAVDA tests way back then, and but he just he wanted it hunted on wild birds, so I took his money and hunted the dog and first day I hunted the dog I realized I'd never I'd never owned a dog that was this capable I shot a rooster out over the snake river and I crippled it actually and this this little poodle pointer just dove in the river swam out chased it clear to an island retrieved it off the island brought it back brought it to me still alive soaking wet and I thought my god my setter would have turned and act like it acted and hadn't seen that if, if it would have been with me and I just I, I, I gotta have one of these dogs as a meat dog just just something for more hunting success and it, it all just kind of gelled from there okay let's um, get let's get back to the the part that caught my ear first and that is some guy paid me money to take his dog hunting where do I sign up for that <laughs> well I don't know, not anymore. I, I suppose I got a I got a grandson that would probably do it. I've got a a predator grandson that, but uh, no, that that was and, and this this was a professional that had too many dogs and he just wanted to make sure this poodle pointer got to hunt wild birds. 
Yeah, you know, I so, think I, I think I've met him once or twice. If I if, if we're talking about the same guy, and what a great what a great way to learn about this breed. Uh, so so after that, um, you you clearly became a little bit more interested because when I was over there, there was at least three or four dogs in your kennel, and if I recall, there might be a litter on the ground right about now. Am I guessing right on that? Yeah, yeah, pretty oh, much. Well, pretty congratulations much. on that. So what is it, uh, I mean, you're in this game now for a long time, and I won't tell anybody how long, but, you know, what keeps you, What keeps the, the blood flowing, the adrenaline pumping with poodle pointers for you? I think, I don't know. that. You know, my, my, my first poodle pointers honestly weren't like the ones that, that, that are available today. And the ones today are so human being affectionate that it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to resist them. I mean, I've got three of them sitting here next to me and, you know, they they just, they just lay here and every time I look at them, their eyes are on me. It's like, they just have a very unique affectionate personality and, uh, you know, we don't we don't have the hunting that that we had when I first got into poodle pointers, but the what I get inside the house, and you know, when we go out to dinner, our dogs go with us. They sit in the car and wait, and you know, almost everywhere we go, our dogs are with us, and they just become part of your life. I mean, I I I think you're the same way. I don't think you're any different. I think yeah. your dogs are a huge part of your life, and. You find this with a lot of, a lot of, regardless of the breed. You know, I've I've known so many people that aren't just poodle pointer people. You know, the the you know you 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 have German wire hairs, and I between Jeff Funky and Carla Hawkins, Meg Eden, Kelly Job, uh, Paul Trout, all all these people work as a team together to get along good with each other. They all breed good dogs, and and they all live with their dogs. Their dogs live with them. It's mm-hmm. not like the old days where the dogs sat out in the chain link kennel waiting for hunting season. I mean, you're not you're not going to see Carla Hawkins without her dogs with her. Well, you know, you they, know? Uh, you know the versatile breeds, of course, as you well know. I'm not telling you anything, but uh, a lot of people out there wondered how they came together, and they were developed as a as a as a breed if you will, a dog that would do everything, the Gebrauchshund, all day, every day dog that would uh, do all the things you described and then get along with the family, protect the home, and uh, probably herd the kids around if they needed herding. So, you know, it, they are, it sounds like to me um, poodle pointers might be the ultimate uh, iteration of that. Uh, it sounds like you feel that way. Am I right? Well, yeah, but you know, all the years I trained gun dogs for other people, I, I, I experienced a lot of dogs. I probably I trained over six hundred gun dogs for other people, and you, you look at the breeds. I don't know how many Vieslas and wire hairs and short hairs. My God, I trained hundreds of short hairs, and I can tell you, some of the nicest dogs I've ever trained were other breeds. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I. I, I I would probably own Vieslas today, but back when I was training dogs, they wouldn't go in the water. Yeah, I yeah. see now we've we've got breeders now, Bridget Nielsen and uh, Cheryl Tepp. They're they're breeding tremendous water dogs, you know, and those those type of Vieslas weren't available back when I kind of selected a breed. But I trained some wonderful. Uh, field Vieslas, same with short hairs, same with, same with English pointers. You know, I, I don't know. There's, I'm, I'm not as hung up on, on a poodle pointers being the, the breed of choice for everybody. I'm as, you know, some breeders get pretty kennel blind. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just not that way. And I think, I think it's because I spent a lot of years training 
a variety, and I, I, I know differently. Yeah, and I, I see that. You can have a discussion uh, with two or three breeders or, uh, that are deep into their breed, and and, and, uh, and they, they are. You're right. They do have blinders on them to a degree. But that comes from, you know, any number of sources. We see it every day on social media, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and just, just to address the question right up front, um, yes, versatile breeds were developed by amalgamating a number of other foundation breeds back in the day. This is not one of those doodle breeds uh, like uh, is is fashionable today. This These dogs were developed for a purpose other than making lots of money for the creator of the breed. So, yes, poodle, yes, pointer, but it goes way back, way back before those guys in Australia came up with that idea. Um we we got a lot to talk about. I just want to touch on this before our first break, Bob, and that is there are breed clubs, there are kennel clubs, and then there's the alliance. And in this case, we're talking about your breeds, North American Poodle Pointer Alliance. That's kind of a different approach, and I, I'd love you to start the discussion on why you feel we need an alliance versus the, you know, the bigger breed club. Well, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta give credit where credit's due. Years ago, I trained almost daily with Jeff Funky. We were both dog trainers, making our way through the dog world, and and Jeff started an alliance and he was a German wire hair breeder trainer and he started an alliance with I don't know four or five people and you know sitting drinking a beer one day after we finished training he explained to me that this gave him more opportunity for breeding dog selection and working in a team and a cooperative team as a breeder he had a lot more opportunities than I had sitting on my own and as I it all made sense to me and so years later Bill Athens and Mike Pallotta and I are sitting in a bar in the Czech Republic we'd gone to Germany Austria the Czech Republic looking at dogs and primarily only poodle pointers but while we were there this idea came up of how much better the dogs were in the Czech Republic than what we had just seen in Germany. How much, how much, the, the people in the Czech Republic were very, very strict about which dogs got to pass on their genetics and, and you know, we're kind of shamefully thinking how open it is in North America. And the, the idea came up, how are we going to protect this breed from all the fools that are going to come along and just indiscriminately breed these dogs without any, any any total plan. And so we came up with the old Jeff Funky idea, why don't we create an alliance and why don't we get eight or ten top breeders together and create some some guidelines some, and some breeding requirements. And really the only requirement would go back to the performance, the field the field performance, and that, that's where NAVDA testing mm-hmm. came in. So mm-hmm. we... We we got back home and we started an alliance and it's 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 uh, God I don't know when the the first alliance I think it was uh, oh God it was two thousand two I think when we started that and there were fifteen members and by two thousand ten there were twenty two members by two thousand nineteen there were forty nine members Wow well it it really grew and the basics was just having a a performance standard which was and and as time went on we 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 raised the standard we we started out that a dog had to receive 100 points in natural ability to be bred and the males had to have a utility prize to be bred and that eliminated the that that only encouraged the above average dogs to basically ever see dog sex. And next thing you know, our average works for had, me. By the way, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our our the, the average of the breed jumped from I think ninety eight points to one hundred and three points. 
So we, we, we raised the bar and we said, okay, let's go to 105. We won't let anybody breed that doesn't, can't get 105 in natural ability. And lo and behold, now the average for all poodle pointers is 107. Which, by the way, is almost a perfect score. You can get 112 in the natural ability test. So 107 right. is what, 93% or something. It's, it's something that statistically you think, it, how can that happen? And mm -hmm. some, of it, some of it, and here again, I've got to go back and be a little bit honest about things and say some, some, of, the, some of the NAVDA testing was designed with the poodle pointer in mind. The, the 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 three individuals that created and started NAVDA, John Cagle, Bodo Winterheld, Ed Bailey, two of those were poodle pointer people. John Cagle then switched and went to wire hairs. But you know they they really didn't have some of these other breeds in mind as much. So the poodle pointers always had a kind of a, an advantage in NAVDA testing to score. But I'll tell you, as time has gone on. The short hairs have have they're right right there even skill with the poodle pointers and they're probably more popular. There's probably more of them. Sure. Uh, they're way more versatile champion short hairs. So you know that all of these breeds have improved. I just I just sent Bridget Nielsen uh, a text the other day and I said, when in the hell do I get one of those red dogs you guys are producing? Because <laughs> I'll tell you, the, these Vizalas are tremendous dogs in today's world. So every every breed has the opportunity to to grow and become better. And this this is where breed clubs or or alliances, whatever you want to call it, really really pay the advantage for a breed, or they also pay a disadvantage. And you can look at some breeds. And they went to a breed club that was kind of designed with a with a breed warden, mm -hmm. and they always fail. <laughs> within ten within ten years, you've got picker people bickering and fighting, and too many standards and too many opinions, and that's why I think the poodle pointer success by only only worrying over performance. You know, it's as, so funny. As, yeah, I, I know what I, I know the club you're talking about. And I describe it as a club for old fat guys with nothing better to do. Well, it's it's kind of sad because people's intentions are always good. I mean, yeah. they always yeah, are. Yeah, sure. People, no, nobody in the dog world does evil. There's no such thing. But there are people that, I you know, it the the breed warden approach in America just it just doesn't doesn't work. If you look at, you know. I, I, I recently went to the Bird Dog Hall of Fame in Tennessee, and I, I was, it was just spectacular for me because I saw all these retrievers that I competed against, River Oaks, Corky, Super Chief, and then I saw all of the people that kicked my ass in retriever trials, from Mike Lardy all the way down, and, and nobody told any of those people how they were going to breed their dogs. Yeah. There, there were no breed wardens in Labrador business. And then when you look at it, at the English pointers and you saw what Bob Whaley and, you know, uh, all of the pointer people, nobody, there was no breed warden. Each individual breeder was his own breed warden. And, it, you know, and this is where I kind of draw the line in the sand that I'm going to stay on the side where there's no breed warden. Every kennel should be able to choose how they want to breed. If they got a dog with big floppy ears or droopy eyes, that's their business. It'll all come back, it'll all come home in the end, but the the, the bickering over over some of the small little issues of, of uh, different dogs' phenotypes just doesn't play out well in America. Well, amen for that, and uh, we're at about the mark where I'm going to let you uh, take a little bit of a sip of whatever you got next to you while I pay the bills. So uh, hang on, everybody. we got a lot more to talk about. We're just getting started here. We'll be back to Bob in just a moment. But first, let me just thank all of our sponsors. And uh, I'm going to jam them all into this break just so that we can get it all done and move forward from there. 
Sage and Breaker gun care products crafted at the highest caliber. Sageandbreaker.com is where you get all the information on Fred Bohm's incredibly diverse and growing line of gun care products from gun grease and a clean lube and protect spray to shotgun cases, all the tools you need to take care of your shotgun. It's all at sageandbreaker.com. Sign up for the mailing list and you won't miss any of the new products the moment they're available to you. Once you've visited Fred Bohm's site, visit Hunt huronsd.com. That's where you sign up for a free information pack full of great public access maps, coupons, promotions, and savings. Plus, it enters you to win one of three hunting, lodging, restaurant packages. It's all from Huron, South Dakota, the Ringneck Nation. Sign up and get all that information for free. 140,000 acres of public access within a half hour or so of downtown Huron. More birds than people. HuntHuronSD.com. And Dr. Tim Hunt is the guy behind Dr. Tim's natural premium dog food. No artificial colors, no artificial flavors, none of the stuff that you might find in some of those lesser I'll call them lesser dog foods. Take a look at all the ingredients in your current dog food and then take a look at Dr. Tim's and see if there's a difference. If there is, there's a reason for it. Tim is the only guy I know who puts all the sources of all of his ingredients on his website. Learn more at drtims.com. Free delivery right to your door, 30% discount on your first order. Just use the code UPLANDNATION. All right, and that is our cue right there to bring Bob back in during our Handle It segment. This is usually where I share with you what I learned the hard way so you don't have to when it comes to training or caring for your dog. Bob, you with me over there? I'm with you. Great, okay then. Here's what I'd like to do. Turn the tables on it, on you for a moment here. You're a dog trainer. You're a dog aficionado. You're a NAVDA judge. You wrote a book on the subject, so you must know a little bit about how this all works. If you were to narrow it down to the top two or three training mistakes people like me make, and, you know, and we've, you've seen a lot of them, you probably corrected a lot of them, what would you think is at the top of that list? Number one is not teaching a dog to come when it's 8 to 12 weeks old. That, that would have to be number one. Everybody puts up with the dog probably way too long, ignoring them, and the dog kind of learns that I don't have to obey because I, I know what he wants. He says come, he kneels down, he pats his leg. I don't want to come, so to hell with him. I'm going to ignore him. And what happens right off the bat, the dog learns, I don't have to mind unless I unless there's something in it for me. And I, I, I tell everybody when they get a puppy from me, I say, make about a 10-foot little cord, let the dog drag it around the house, around the yard. At eight weeks old, grip a hold of that cord and say, come, say it three times, and then just pull the dog into you, make it come, starting. And when it gets to you, love it up, that's its reward and that's probably number one number two would probably be so many people don't take the time to take especially a versatile dog do it I, I, I like to call it create a frisbee dog frisbee yeah. dog yeah a dog that loves to retrieve I mean it just it loves it it loves that game well if you create it when they're 10 12 weeks old and by the time they're six months you you don't have a lot of work on the retrieving game. You don't have to force retrieve that dog. You can do what they call a, a more of a trained retrieve, where you just insist they don't they don't drop things. Those are probably the, the two things that I just see people failing at, and it's getting getting too busy in your in your day. And you know, if I say there's a third one, it's probably lack of socialization. Uh -huh. Not not thinking through and taking the individual time. You know, you asked me about the Boise State thing. One, one of the biggest fears I had was, one, 
failing in front of ESPN. But number two was my dog freaking out the first time they saw a black man. They had never seen somebody other than a Caucasian. And I thought, okay, I remember, I grew up in a little town over in Oregon, Enterprise, Oregon. I never saw anybody but Caucasians until I went to college. And the first time I physically saw one, I, I stared at him for a while. Next thing you know, I was playing football with these guys. And it was like, hey, they're just like me. But it, it, I, was, I was afraid that my dog would see one and, go and, and bark at him, back up and bark. So I took Eli, went down to the stadium. I went into the weight room. I had him on a leash. Uh, one of the running backs was lifting weight. Uh, I handed him the leash, and I said, hey, could you hold my dog? I, I, I got to go take a piss. And he said, he looked at me like, yeah, I guess. So I went down to the athletic director's office. I sat in there for 30 minutes and shot the breeze, came back. And there'd been about five different guys holding the dog while I was gone. So all of a sudden, it didn't matter what color you were. Well, the next thing that I thought was, what are they going to do when they see a football player with a helmet on? That's going to freak them out. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, I went to a high school football game and talked the coach into letting me walk the dog through the players on the sideline. And I actually sent the dog out and let him retrieve the kicking tee a couple times. And so when I relate that back to people when they get a puppy, I'll say, okay, you don't have any kids. What, what do you think, what, what, what was your response the first time that you actually saw a midget? You didn't run up and hug him and you stared at him. And that's going to be the response that your dog's going to have once it sees a, a little toddler, if it's never seen one. So take your dog and go, go to a soccer game. Go to a little league football game. There'll be parents there with children. Let people pet your dog, hold your dog, walk it along on a leash, and just introduce it to kids. Take it to Home Depot. Let it see all kinds of people. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking... After they've had their second puppy shot, you sh everybody should start a very, very serious socialization process with their dog. Oh, I, I can't agree more. Our, our mutual friend Ed Bailey's column in the current Gundog magazine starts with that topic. And if you've uh, had more than one dog, you've already lived through it. And Bob, I can, I can relate to every one of those fears you had. Yes, I failed in front of the ESPN cameras as well. <laughs> probably uh <laughs> probably more gloriously than most people but um but it's so true and um and it is all of those things and more now with flick i've been lucky because flick has been going and sitting on the table at the mitchell cabela's store since he was four months old you're listening to the upland nation podcast that's bob ferris author breeder dog trainer and uh all around good guy but he's also um and uh bob i i'm gonna brag for just a moment here i um i'll talk more later about this by the way everybody so if you want to tune out now it's a good time but but um i just spent the entire season hunting new places i'd never been to before and almost everywhere i was hunting was for chuckers so um, if, if you got anything to contribute to the whole bird hunting and possibly even the chucker hunting uh, discussion here, you got any strategies for us? Because I'm still learning every time I go out. You know, chucker, you know, when I, when I started up on hunting, there were so many pheasants here in Idaho. The limit was four. I hunted Oregon and Idaho every weekend. So I had an eight bird limit. It, it was incredible. Well, I would probably feel guilty today shooting a rooster in Idaho. You know, just it, I just don't. I, in fact, the two times that I that I that I've gone, I left the gun in the car. I just I didn't want to shoot a rooster. I love seeing them. So, but the chuckers, for some wonderful reason, chuckers have really adapted to our to our more arid high desert country in Utah, Nevada, Idaho, Oregon, Washington. Wyoming, there's good chucker populations, and they they seem to hold steady without any any help from humans. Uh, and 
I get, you know, as as you get older, you it, it gets harder and harder. I mean, there was a, there was a time that I I there was just I, I I could I could go put put together a six eight hour chucker hunt and get back to the truck and and not be completely dead. Now now for me a chucker hunt's about three hours and that's I'm I'm done. I I need to kind of think about where I go and what kind of country I get into, but. All of the time, and I, I hunted, I, I hunted chuckers with a guy named Joe Leonard way back, way way back. And he, I worked at a, I was a lab supervisor at a hospital. Joe was the groundskeeper. Joe hunted every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. He took every Tuesday and Thursday as his vacation, from September fifteenth until January thirty first. He hunted chuckers, and he was absolute master and I, I was fortunate to get to hunt with him and you know he he had two wire hairs and they were extremely disciplined they backed each other great they retrieved great his whole game was his whole game was and, and he used to preach this to me all the way out and all the way back he would talk about the rules of chucker hunting but his number one rule was you find your dogs on point don't walk up behind them because you're you're standing probably x number of feet taller i'm going to change phones here i think am i still on yeah loud and clear all right his whole thing was you walk up behind a dog you're standing about four feet higher than that dog those chuckers see you they don't see the dog and if you, most dogs learn to stay way off the chuckers because they know there's there's very little cover between the dog and the birds. The birds can see you coming, and that's why you invariably see dogs pointing chuckers a good 50 yards off the covey, sometimes 200 yards, depending on the dog and the conditions and the how the scent's moving. But when they point a pheasant, they're five feet because there's usually so much cover, the dog doesn't, that can't see me. I can get this close. They said, if you walk up, up behind a dog standing four feet higher, guess what? That bird, those birds see you. And there's usually one sentinel bird, and he says, we better get the hell out of here, and they all flush, and you don't even get a shot. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, so you come off to the side, and you slip down the side and get what you think is below the birds, and then come around, kind of hook around. Now you're under the birds, and now you work your way up towards your dog. And basically, you try to get the birds between you and the dog without the birds getting seeing you doing it. I'm laughing well, with you at that one because, like you said, you think you're below the birds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the, whole, the whole idea is to get to maximize your shots. Now, Joe... Joe shot a 28-gauge pump, and he shot number seven shot. And he'd always say, not seven and a half, seven. And he was, and back then the limit was 10. And he would be thoroughly pissed on the way home if he shot over 12 shots to get his 10 birds. He was just an, but he secured really good shots by his technique. And his dogs were so well-trained, and they behaved so good, and and I don't know, I've, I've only, I got to say, I, I probably find one out of 10 times I can make that happen. The other nine t- out of 10 times, something just seems to go wrong. One time, one time I knew I was under the birds and I started coming up the hill. T- Tucker was on point and I kept getting closer and closer and closer to him. And I thought, when the hell are these birds going to lift up? And then I realized I was herding the birds uphill. They didn't know my dog was there. Oh. And I watched this bird, this one chucker, jump up on a rock, you know, within probably a fucker's head. Jumped up, hopped up on this rock, and Tucker's just kind of like, just like he's petrified. If I move, am I in trouble? Maybe I can, you know. And I actually herded these birds past him, and I flushed them on the, up above him. Wow. It, 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 gets, it gets an interesting game to try to play, and... You know, like I said, if if you're lucky one time out of ten, you 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 feel like you you won the war. Yeah, it's so but true. Chucker, chucker, chucker hunting is a war. I mean, you know, people 
people, they are the enemy. You, you learn to hate them because well, they, 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 they win all the time. Absolutely. And as they say, that's why you, you hunt them the first time for fun. And after that, it's for revenge. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and if you've done it the right way, and, and of course, yeah, everybody here at the Upland Nation podcast understands that we're talking about real wild chuckers that are living in the, the high lonesome, not that stuff you get at the game farm. But um, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and this idea of Getting away from the dog, I've never thought of as a height question, but it's absolutely true. And you'd think I would because we used to put a camera on my dogs for the TV show. Yeah. And you'd yeah, see the oh, dog's yeah. eye view. And uh, and yeah. if, if you could put one on a bird, and we tried that too, <laughs> it would it would have yeah. illustrated that. Absolutely. Well, you know, there's no, go ahead. Well, there, I mean, there's no question that, as you as you age and, and hunt and you know like Joe Joe had so many rules. One of them you absolutely were never allowed to talk, mm-hmm. and you didn't talk to your dog. And he'd say these chuckers have never heard a human voice. The first time they hear it, guess what they do? They either run or fly. I'm I'm sitting on a rock one day with this friend, and I'm telling him this story. We have a sandwich or something. I can't remember, but and I, so I'm telling him this story. And I get halfway through the story, and we hear the we hear these chuckers right above us get up and fly off. And I'm like, "Well, shit! Look at that! What a bunch of you know." Old Joe was right, but they, you know, that that noise that noise that they're not used to uh, just is you know I don't know you just you 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 see people walking along talking to each other hollering back and forth or, or even, or just hollering at your dog. That's probably the worst thing as a chucker hunter. Yeah. You know, I use a whistle for a lot of reasons. One is yeah. distance, but the other is it doesn't sound like a human. And, and I, yeah. you know, it might give me a little bit of an edge, but this whole idea of being stealthy in many ways, you know, if we could all harken back to when we were little kids and we were playing army, uh, we'd probably be <laughs> a lot better off. <laughs> well, you know, one of the, as a as a bird hunter, one of my claims to fame was the way I learned to. I'd, I'd, I'd get off work. I'd get off work at two thirty. I'd come home, grab a couple of dogs, and go pheasant hunting. And invariably, by the by December, these damn birds. And there, and there were lots of pheasants, but as soon as you walked into a field, they were getting up at the other end. I mean, they they would run ahead of you, and so I took a transistor radio and I duct taped it to a to a rod and I went to the far end of this field I stuck at the rod in the ground turned the radio on as loud as it would go drove to the far end of the field started hunting towards that radio and when I got to where I could hear the radio in the distance birds were flying over my head in other words I was herding these birds toward that radio and when they could hear it they all stopped and either 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 my dogs were able to get on point, or some of them, if they were going to flush wild, they were going to fly back. And uh, that was my way of hunting by myself. Well, you know, I, I just finished a, a, an episode of the show that will be on in about three or four weeks and talked about uh, being your own blocker. Uh, didn't do yeah. it, do it, didn't do it quite that way, but I love that idea. Um, that, that ranks right up there in your, in the chapter that we need to add to our books next time. And that is all the crazy things people have done. You, you might remember the Chucky Chucker hunters who would tie a helium balloon to their belt. Oh yeah. Oh God. Yes. Uh, I heard. Yeah. I, I never did it. Uh, I don't know anybody who's ever done it or will admit it at least, but uh, same yeah. idea. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're using common sense and thinking like a bird. Um, yeah. And I won't bore everybody with that story, by the way, but uh, let me just remind you, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Bob Ferris. Here we are in the Cabela's podcast studio. Uh, Bob, because you've got pups on the ground right now, and it's a timely question, because soon enough, somebody's going to be coming over and looking at that litter and trying to decide which one they're going to get. Now, I know a lot of you guys are adamant about picking the dog for the buyer, Um one way or the other, what what are some of the things we should be mindful of when we're uh, when we're actually to the point where we're picking a puppy from a breeder that we know and trust? I think you know we. I don't think anybody's picked a puppy here for close to ten years. 
Mm-hmm. And, and most people, once I explain it to them, once I show them our evaluation sheet and how thorough we are about it, they go, I get it. I get it. You're going you're gonna to see them every day. I'm going to see them for t- 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. And, you know, I, <laughs> I have a wife that uh, she, she really is dialed in. She does things that uh, are, are right. And, you, you know, you said earlier, you're still, you're still doing this. And, you know, it's not that I, I'm the only one that loves doing it. My wife loves it. She whelps all our letters. She raises them. I step in at the end and hand them off to people. And, and get it, and it, get it, all it, the glory, and it, and it looks like I do all the work, and yeah. I and li- I literally do not. I I train the dogs. I I decide what dog's going to breed to what dog, and you know that's that's my my part. But you know to answer your question, when these puppies before they open their eyes and their ears, she goes out and sits with the mother, and she'll sit there and she'll make sure every puppy has sucked on her little finger tried to nurse on her little finger and she'll sit there and cool them and, and, and talk to them with her breath right, right next to their face. So they get to, they get to smell her breath. They get to smell her. Now, when they open their eyes, her theory is when they open their eyes, they go, my God. So that's what you look like. You, you're, you're that, you're that thing that loved me. And they're instantly attracted to her. Then she'll sit out there in the puppy pen and she'll sing to them and she'll talk to them. And she's always, we, we have a TV going 24 seven in our, in our puppy room. And she wants them to hear, <laughs> hear all of these human voices. I went out there the other day and Archie Bunker was on and I thought, Oh my God, we're introducing these puppies to Archie Bunker. Oh, but just the voice, not the philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. But then she'll take them on little field trips as they get older and sit out and sit out in the grass, you know, you know, on a blanket with them. And she'll try to, the ox, she'll try to sneak back to the house. There's always one that knows absolutely lays there like it's asleep, but it's not and knows, and it's right at her heels. She can't. So she'll, she'll kind of rate the personalities. And if she sees a puppy that's always biting the other puppies, bullying it, you know, we rate that one as an alpha puppy. If she sees one that's submissive, we rate that one maybe a little more submissive. And if we've got a submissive puppy, she'll put a little honey on its back. That way the other puppies will start licking it instead of biting it. And that little puppy all of a sudden thinks, my God, I'm the most popular pup in the bunch. Okay, hold it. Everybody, make a mental note of this. This is the kind of stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else. But I know exactly what you're speaking about there, Bob, and what a brilliant solution to that problem. Give her a gold star for me. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've had people pull in the driveway at my house wanting to look at our dogs, meet us, blah, blah, blah. And I look at her, and she, she's given me the no way. And what I'm looking at, is a bright yellow Hummer and somebody hopping out of it and it's coming from Sun Valley, Idaho and the guy jumps out of it in blue and white camo and his his honey's got a bonnet as big as like she's going to the Derby and you know just people like, in little face like no they're not getting one of my puppies no way yeah. <laughs> yeah. you have you have to make the grade with her in, in, in so to speak because you know I'm 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 I, I wouldn't have the success I have. If, if I had to do this, I mean, I just, I, it, it'd be totally different. I'd do it the way most men do, do with puppies. And I still, I, I, I save a little teal and freeze them. And so I'll put a little teal in with the puppies when they're about six weeks old, let them smell them, let them start kind of chewing on them, drag them around and, you know, just see, I, I'm, trying to maybe identify some of the prey drive that's in this pup, which isn't really as realistic as probably the, the, I should be evaluating the personality more, but we'll, we'll do those things. We'll bring a puppy in the house by itself. It's never been in the house before. We'll bring it in. It's all alone. And we sit and watch TV and leave the puppy running around. And we see, 
we're looking for separation anxiety. How mm-hmm. how bad? Because every now and then there's a pup that just starts screaming. Well, that's the pup. You know, I live in Idaho. That's the pup you want to send to Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> but this is but you can work through a lot of that simply by exposing these dogs yeah, i mean yeah. you're but the, the, the key the key is is that the new owner i have i have this whole sheet each puppy has a little different colored collar and there's probably about 20 little ratings that go with each puppy yeah and if i have a puppy that has separation anxiety i've seen it as at five, six weeks, seven weeks old, I want the new owner to know, okay, this is something you're going to have to deal with. You know, you, you need to get one of those little, those little, those little puppy nursemaid things that has a little thumping heart in it. So mm-hmm. the puppy gets to sleep with that at night for the first month or so. And so you, you're, you're right. You know, you, it's all overcomable, but the new owner needs to know potentially what they should be doing. Or else you can watch the living room curtains come down the first time you go out to dinner. Or, yeah, yeah. or wait a minute, did I mention the vacuum cleaner or the bathroom floor? Yeah. No, I didn't, but, uh, but I, I will now just so that you know that. Bob, <laughs> you know, we, could do, we, we really do need to do this more often, and, uh, and I mean that sincerely. I, I miss you guys over there, and, and that other guy we were talking about with the funny name, yeah, you know, he's, he's one of my good guys, too, in this world. But, um, you know, before I turn you loose, and I promise that's going to happen momentarily, um, so everybody else, if you want to tune out again, here's your chance. But Bob Ferris, author, NAVDA judge, dog trainer, dog breeder, avid hunter. If you were going to leave us, we all aspire to be like you, Bob. Uh, if you're going to leave us with anything at all about anything in that whole world, what would you, in 25 words or less, what would you tell us? Is there anything that I'm really proud of that my 40 years has kind of created or accomplished or whatever? I would probably say, sitting in that bar with Bill Athens creating the Alliance that has done more for the poodle pointer than anything that, that group has just gone through a big reorganization. And I got to say, I am so proud now to see any, anybody that wants to see where the poodle pointer Alliance is today, go to poodle pointer alliance.com. And you'll see they're now, we have seven board of directors, and it's just a great young group. I mean, when I, when I passed 70 and Bill, Bill Athens passed 80, we said, it's time to pass the torch. We've got to make sure a younger group of people take over the alliance. And so we did, and we created a, this board of directors, seven guys, and they're all very young, enthusiastic guys. They... And what they've created is just, it's, it's just beautiful. The bylaws, they're incorporated. They've, you know, they, they, they've got a trademark, a federal trademark now for Napa. They've just done everything that should have been done in years past. But it kind of ensures to me this breed is in safe hands because of these. And you, and you can go on that website and you can see who the individuals are. But one's a veteran, and, and the other unique thing is the way they're spread out. One's from Mississippi, one's, one's from Maryland, one's from Montana, one's from Texas, they're, one's from Washington, uh, one's from Minnesota. So they're all spread all over. And uh, our original alliance gathering was in McCall, Idaho. Fifteen of us gathered there and created the alliance. And this group of seven is going to meet there again this summer in the call and have their first board of directors meeting and some of the old old guys me and you know there probably been eight or ten of us that'll show up too and everybody gets to shake hands meet each other eat breakfast together and whatnot and i it, I, it would be so wonderful I've, to, I've told bridget nielsen you, you need to consider this for the vizlas i know jeff funky has done it to a certain extent with the wire hairs and, and it's it's something that really helps protect the breeds, these different breeds. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's exactly right. There are so many people who are, who are breeding or selling dogs for the wrong reasons. It's nice to hear somebody doing it for the right reasons. More power to you and the North American Poodle Pointer Alliance. And this alliance got to be 49 breeders, and I can tell you it was, a, it was a tough deal, and I don't know exactly how it's shaken out, but I know this group of seven, the board of directors, they eliminated about five people and said, you're not, you're not, you're not what the breed needs. You're not representing That's a tough call. That's tough to do to somebody. But that shakeout is going to be better for the breed in the end. Well, and I, you know, my hat's off to them. I, 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 I don't think I could have done it. Well, so. I'm glad somebody did, and uh, I'm glad that it's going in the in the right direction. Um, congratulations on, gosh, so many things. I haven't talked with you since the book came out, so good on you for that, and Lafay as well. Good job on that. Um, for everything else in your life and everything you've done for all of us in the versatile hunting dog world, thank you very much. And thanks for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Bob Ferris, thank you so much. You bet. You bet. Adios. But don't go anywhere because we've got a lot more to talk about, including uh, some advice on public access hunting that I have learned over the years and particularly this season. But first quick mention for you all of the dogtra t and b dual collar dual two collars you can put them both on one dog if you're training that way or on two dogs and train two dogs together what i love so much about this dogtra collar is the fact that you don't need to flip a switch toggle back and forth press on a screen or anything else you got two sets of buttons you got one set for dog a and one set for dog b why didn't anybody think of that sooner anyway it works very well for me and it'd probably work work very well for you do me a favor at least take a look at dogtra.com the t and b dual if you do buy one here's an incentive 10 percent discount and free shipping on anything over 200 dollars. but you got to use the code s l u n 10 do me a big favor go on over there and take a close look if you're shopping for training callers now that the season is over you might be well served by the dogtra t and b duel hey this land is your land and believe me i have learned it in spades this just past season I hope you got out there and enjoyed some public access hunting, whether it's uh, CRP, Forest, Bureau of Land Management or whatever. All those walk-in areas, wildlife management areas, even waterfowl production areas. We own them or we have paid in one way or another for access. And I made a study of it this year. Here are some of the things that I've learned. Someday I'll write an article on this for somebody. Let's see who wants it. But in the meanwhile, here's some lessons for you from me. Number one on the list, if you do have a choice, go where there are a number of areas that you can access. So pick a town or pick some other way to locate headquarter that is smack dab in the middle of, you know, three walk-in areas or four waterfowl production areas or a little bit of everything. Because there might be somebody else who gets there first. There might be one place where the snow is too deep or they plowed under all the good cover. You're close to another one. Go there instead. And drive and walk a little farther than most of the other people. It doesn't take much. In fact, I remember years ago a hunter telling me, yeah, if you get a quarter mile from the road, you're going to be farther than most people ever go. I've learned that a lot of times this year. Put on your best hiking boots, lace them up tight, and then finally, spend some time in the local watering hole and restaurants, the coffee shops and cafes, because even if you're not out there actively seeking advice, once people know you're new to the area, I'll bet you somebody will make, a, make, an, they'll, they'll make an attempt to help you out in one way or another. I'll tell you more about that in the weeks to come and all the stories we had from buckaroos and cattle rustlers and everybody else. It's all coming up in an upcoming edition of the Upland Nation podcast.
All right. So one more uh, reminder, please uh, check out my new uh, wing shooting uh, website to do more of the things I've just been talking about. It is findbirdhuntingspots.com. It is full of uh, articles and directions and advice on getting out there and accessing all of those kind of places. We don't get down to the latitude and longitude, but I will tell you that north of this town in this general area is a waterfowl protection area that not only holds ducks, but it holds a lot of pheasants because it's next to cornfields. Find it all at findbirdhuntingspots.com. You can sign up for the mailing list, and if you do, you're entered to win that pointer over under shotgun. Any gauge you like from my good friends, Andy and Rick and everybody at pointer shotguns and finally do yourself a favor do your ears a favor and go to espamerica.com and shop around for the electronic hearing protection device that will fit you literally and figuratively the best you start losing your hearing when you start shooting or working on dragsters or playing in too loud a band it ain't coming back. You can drink all the magic potion you've got. You can conjure up all the voodoo curses you know, and they won't help you. ESPamerica.com will by preventing hearing loss to begin with. And with that, it's time to say goodbye from the Cabela's Podcast Studios. I'm Scott Linden, your host here at the Upland Nation Podcast. You want to stay in touch? All sorts of ways to do it. The Upland Nation Facebook page, the Wing Shooting USA TV Facebook page. You can always drop me an email at scottlindenoutdoors at gmail.com. And you can subscribe, rate, or review the Upland Nation podcast. I sure would appreciate that because all of those things help when it comes to finding sponsors. And without sponsors, there ain't no Upland Nation podcast. Appreciate all your help, all of your attention. And I hope you had a great season. Only eight months to the opening of chucker season in some states. Maybe it's rough grouse for you, or maybe it's sharp tails. Wherever it is, I hope you're planning already. And in the meanwhile, take care of your dog. Train him up. Enjoy the rest of the off season. And uh, maybe I'll see you at Pheasant Fest. Thanks again. Appreciate your listening. <laughs>